Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I am Jenny Taylor. And today we have with us Samara Sanger. Hi, Samara. Hi. Hi. We are so grateful to have you here with us and grateful that you are willing to share your story. Quick background. Samara and I met virtually, which everything during the pandemic seems virtual, through a group called the Wounded Warrior Project. A lot of our listeners have probably heard of it, maybe seen a commercial on TV. Uh, It's a great group that works with veterans who face all kinds of wounds. You know, some of those wounds are physical. Some of them are more emotional or mental health. And Samara is being very gracious and willing to share with us her journey. Um, her military background, her personal background, some of these wounds that she has faced and is facing. And then, like we always try to focus on the tools of resiliency and just, man, fighting one day after another to get here. So first of all, Samara, let us say thank you for being being willing to talk with us. Also, thank you for your military service in the Navy. And I know Michelle and I are both really interested in getting to know you a little bit better and wondered if you might start off by just introducing yourself and a little of your, your background, your upbringing, how you ended up in the Navy, maybe some of your, your interests and passions as you're in your life, and just kind of let us get to know you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. This is really interesting. I loved um, meeting you and hearing the story about your family and, you know, your husband's service. And it's just definitely an honor to be here. Um, I I was born and raised here um, in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, a lot of my family is here, uh, you know, my main support system. Um, so even like when I got out of the military, I came back to Arizona. But um, like I said, I was raised here. Um, and, you know, the funny thing about Arizona is that it's a right to work state. So um, basically they can, you know, hire and fire you really with no um kind of need for cause or anything like that. So um, it was kind of instilled in me when I was younger to just work really hard and, you know, to take care of yourself. Um, Both my parents owned their own companies. So uh, my dad worked construction, uh, like road uh, grading and paving. And um, my mom, she ran a a telemarketing company. Uh, It started off out of our house and then it just grew. So even from a young age, Uh, My brother and I, we were working and, you know, um, but it was always a dream of mine to be better than my parents, I guess you could say. Um, Education was really important to me. Uh, I just, I wanted to uh, succeed and to do well and to be able to take care of myself and just really didn't want um, the struggles that I kind of saw them having uh, financially and things like that. So um, I did work throughout high school and um, I had been accepted into this program. It's called the ACE program, where basically you would be taking college courses while you're in high school to get dual credit, things like that. Um, But we did have a few uh, family emergencies. My mom uh, got really sick and um, you know, just had a lot of uh, problems um, with drugs and alcohol and things like that, unfortunately. And so that kind of all fell to the wayside. Um, but I did, you know, graduate from high school, uh, you know, with amazing grades. I, like I said, I always thought school was important and I was working, um, but it just kind of came to a point where I was working one dead-end job after another, and I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do Um, in high school. Well, you know, since a very early age, I was into the arts. Um, I loved, you know, drawing, singing. I played the violin. I played the cello. So, you know, just every bit of arts was just important to me, amazing to me. Um, but I didn't really know how that could be a career or anything like that. Um, and so after working a few dead end jobs, uh, back to back, um, it was funny, you know, one of the places that I worked, everybody was like, oh, you're so amazing. You know, I was a file clerk and they were just like, you do such a great job. And I had actually gotten sick, had to have some surgeries And uh, had to take some time off of work. And when I came back, they were so excited to have me back uh, because, you know, the files had kind of gone astray while I was out. 
Um, so everybody was excited to have me back. And then just a couple months later, though, I was terminated. So it was, um, I talked with my dad, really trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life? Where can I go from here? You know, I was in a single, you know, like a studio apartment, just trying to figure out where do I go now? And um, one of my aunts had been in the military, in the Air Force, and also um, one of my cousins worked for uh, Boeing, you know, had an amazing career working on, uh, you know, the jet engines and things like that. So I was like, okay, I do like mechanics. Um, I was thinking that's what I want to do. I want to be a jet engine mechanic. Uh, So we went to uh, the Chris Town Mall, uh, or I don't, I think it's called Spectrum now. But um, anyway, they they said that they had all the recruiting stations there. So we went in, because um, like I said, I wanted to join the Air Force. So we were looking around and we couldn't find the recruiting station for the Air Force. And so I walked into uh, the Navy recruiting station and I, you know, we said, um, I thought that all the recruiting stations were here. Is the Air Force not here? And they said, well, you know, actually they moved just down the street and they told us where it was, but they said, "Um, why do you want to join the Air Force? And I said, well, I want to be a jet engine mechanic. And they said, well, you know, the Navy does have their own jet engines, you know, and and they're like, how about you sit down and take the ASVAB and, you know, let's see what we could do for you. And so the recruiter there was just really nice. Um, so I went ahead, sat down, took the ASVAB and they said, you know, why do you want to be a jet engine mechanic? Uh, I said, you know, family, um, you know, I think it could lead to a great career, things like that. And they just said, well, you know, according to your ASVAB scores, you could do whatever you want. Um, You know, if you want to be a jet engine mechanic or if you want to do, uh, you know, work with anything, (laughs) whatever you want to do, just let us know. And I said, well, honestly, I just want to get out of here. I was 20 years old. I just wanted to start my life uh, and and move on. So I wanted to leave tomorrow. And they said, well, we have to keep you uh, at least three weeks, but we could get you out as soon as we can. And and that's what I did. And so I went into um, the Naval. It was called a a GTEP program and um, engineering Uh, So I basically kind of went in unrated and um, I would learn a little bit of each engineering program in the Navy and then I could choose what I wanted or uh, what was needed where I was stationed. And so that sounded really exciting to me and I wound up uh, becoming what we call damage control, which is firefighting, pipe batching and um, shipboard stability. So I absolutely loved it. I was so excited and Um, you know, one of the hardest things was, uh, just kind of some physical changes that I had to make before I left. Um, my family is a little bit of a bigger family, (laughs) big boned. (laughs) And so, um, you know, just learning to eat better and to work out more. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't too horrible, uh, but it just little life changes that started right then. Sure. Just getting yourself ready to take that. I mean, that's no small feat to say, hey, I'm going to jump into this and put on the uniform and meet those different requirements. Yeah. And luckily at the time I had great friends that were like, okay, let's get out and let's run, but you know, and, and let's work out and things like that. And like I said, though, I was like, I want to get out now. And, and I think I did leave like three weeks later. So it was pretty quick adjustment, but, um, but yeah, I, I was ready and I was excited to start the new chapter in my life. Well, amazing. When We're going to uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we want to hear about your service and um, the struggles that you've had uh, from, from your service and, and what's that been like for you. We're going to okay. be back in just a moment. And we're back. Uh, kind of a whirlwind getting you, you make this decision and, and I think three weeks is a pretty fast transition (laughs) from going, um, from being a file clerk, uh, 
losing that position, walking into a recruiting office, and then just needing to get on with life and figuring out what what it was that you were going to do and just get on with it. I think you were the recruiter's dream, though. I mean, what recruiter doesn't love that when a young person walks in and says, that's it, ship me out right now, I'm ready, okay, I'm going to run, I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to meet every requirement you give me, sign me up. I I love that she wanted the Air Force because of her interest in jets. But the Navy was not going to let her walk nope, out that no door. Uh-uh. <laughs> they they saw what they had. They, there's no way they were going to let you get away. So, yeah, tell us a little bit. What did that early service look like? And then we know, obviously, you faced um, quite a few challenges, both on the physical side and the, the mental, emotional side. Can you walk us through that journey that you face? Yeah. Um, you know, just even from day one, it was amazing. I think, you know, you hear some horror stories about people talking about going in and, uh, you know, and their recruiters lied to them and things like that. I never had anything like that. Um, my recruiting people were wonderful. You know, they stuck with me. I even um, was fortunate enough to have my recruiter came and visit me when I was in boot camp because they have to do um, training every once in a while where they kind of go back and do a little mock boot camp and things like that. So that just happened to fall when I was in boot camp. Oh, cool. And um, and so it was funny. So my recruiter came out and visited me, of course, the day that I had my molars pulled and and I had a bunch of cotton in my mouth and and I couldn't barely speak, but (laughs) it was really nice. You know, they were just there to help me through the process and and get things figured out and you know and down the best path for me so that was great um and they were they were just really nice and really helpful and and you know and boot camp honestly was a bit of a struggle for me because uh I grew up in a background of uh, a bunch of men you know I have three brothers and um, myself and my dad um, that I'm closest with. And so it was really hard actually going to boot camp and learning to live with 30 women <laughs> in the same area and, you know, uh, getting showers down and things like that. And just uh, losing all of your individuality basically is kind of what boot camp is about. You know, you're taking a shower with all these females at the same time you have just, you know, like five minutes to get ready, uh, 10 minutes to eat, things like that. So just really learning to be on the go and kind of lose a little bit of your individuality was a bit hard for me um, growing up very strong willed and uh, independent. So, Mm -hmm. but it was exciting, um, a challenge that I was looking forward to, like I said, um, and it, it was funny because really one of the reasons also that I joined the military is I wanted to travel the world, you know, and so after or when we were in boot camp and and you meet with your uh, the person who's going to give you your orders, you know, I, they ask you to write down, where do you want to go? And so I'm like, Germany, Italy, you know, all these places across the world, anywhere cool, you know, like somewhere different, new. And and, and then they go, oh, you're from Arizona. Okay, we're going to station you in San Diego. So you could be by your family. And I was like, oh, but I told you, no, no, no. Oh, that's such irony. Um, but it, it was, you know, it all happens for a reason. And it was really wonderful um, to be in San Diego. And it was wonderful to be uh, so close to my family and to be able to travel home. But, you know, first it definitely, you know, took boot camp and then schooling. Uh, like I said, I got to learn a little bit about each engineering job um, in the military. So, you know, the learning about the engine room and then uh, learning about damage control, which I wound up being and uh, going through the gas chamber again and um, things like that and and just really getting a, a good knowledge of the ship and how the ship runs and things like that and so um, school that was all in Great Lakes and, and the funny thing was too is that you know like I said I'm born and raised here in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're really known for our heat and um, I went to boot camp in January. And my grandpa goes, could you have picked a worse time a year ago? And I was like, I have no idea. He goes, well, I guess you could have left in December. So it was pretty shocking to land and have like three feet of snow on the ground. And I'm like, what is this? Right. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have this in Arizona. What is and, that white uh, stuff? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what 
this could be. And that even, you know, we here don't have daylight savings time. So all throughout the military. Oh, to keep and, track of time um, changes. Learning daylight savings time and adding an hour and taking away an hour. And that was just beyond reason to me. <laughs> but uh, just, you know, one of those little things. So anyway, so boot camp went to school and um, then I was uh, sent off to my first ship. And, you know, they say like, you think when you're in boot camp and when you're in school, you think that these are going to be your best friends and they're going to be people that you know forever. And I did make some, you know, meet some really amazing people, but really the military life is just so fast moving. And um, I think I've tried to reach out to a few people from back then, but didn't keep any hard connections. But definitely um, when I got to the ship, it was it was completely different and, you know, definitely made uh, lasting friendships there. Um, but yeah, I so when I got out of school, the ship that I was going to, um, they were actually already on deployment. So I got to meet them in uh, Bahrain. And one of the funny things was uh, my grandma, she was in New York at the time. And so they had flown me from um, San Diego to New York, and then I'd go to London, and then I'd uh, meet my ship in Bahrain. And so um, I get to New York, and my grandma, she meets me at the airport, and she brings me the, like, this huge, huge stuffed animal uh, dog that has like military camis on. And she's just so <laughs> excited and so proud of me to go. But I'm like, I can't take that with me. <laughs> how am I going to bring this into a foreign country? Like, it's just so impractical. Not Thank only you. that, you're going on a ship. And from what I hear, those things are, don't have a lot of, you don't get a room, really. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no of... personal space, no <laughs> decorating or anything like that. So it's just like, um... Okay, thank you. <laughs> I think I definitely lost that the first night or something. Uh, but <laughs> it was it was neat though. It was nice seeing family before I left, and you know, and um, so. But one of the things, you know, this to me was a permanent uh, duty station transfer, and so I had to pack everything. I, you know, all my uniforms, any personal clothes that I had, which really wasn't a lot at the time because I had just like I said, gone from boot camp to, to school. And so it's not like I had a house full of anything, but you know, when you are packing up all your military uniforms, there is quite a bit there. So I think I had like three bags or something. And, uh, and so, you know, we flew into London and, and at the time on the plane, I was wearing these uh, khaki pants and, um, and the guy uh, that was like taking care of us and serving us, he had spilled soda on my pants. And so I was like, oh, I can't wait to land and change. And then we get into Bahrain and um, they had left my luggage in London. <laughs> so oh, I no. only had what I had on me, which thank goodness is like my toothbrush and toothpaste for whatever reason I had that in my purse, but nope, I got to stay in these nice stained khaki pants. And, and then the guy that I flew with, he was doing a, a permanent duty state, uh, duty station change as well. But he had like 10 bags and they all came in. And I was like, how is that fair? <laughs> like, Why did mine get left and his are here? But uh, so since since I um, since I didn't have any of my uniforms or anything like that, I actually actually wound up um, being kind of stationed in Bahrain for for uh, about a week until my ship pulled in and I got my um, luggage back so I could check onto the ship, and um, it, it was interesting. You know, it was met a couple of nice people there as well, and and went out to see this tree of life that's in Bahrain that. It's just this big, beautiful tree that's just growing in the middle of a desert surrounded by sand. And you just have this big green tree in the middle. And uh, and so that was pretty interesting. And even going to like the mall, I, I don't know what I thought going to another country. I was like, what's a mall going to be like out here? But it was very Americanized, you know, um, so it was a big, beautiful mall with like all the stores that you would think of anywhere else, but just better prices. So I liked that. <laughs> I got to get some new clothes. Um, 
But unfortunately, it was a bit of a rocky start um, to my military career. Uh, uh, when I was there in Bahrain, um, I, uh, you know, went out with some of the guys that uh, one of the first nights that I was there in town and um, we went to a bar, a local bar. And of course, um, you know, I was young. I was 20. I hadn't been drinking or anything like that. And even if, you know, some people start drinking a little bit younger, but being in boot camp and being in school, there definitely wasn't any possibility for that. So I went out um, drinking with some of my guys and um, I got drugged and uh, got taken back to base. And unfortunately, uh, I was uh, taken advantage of or, or raped by uh, a military member um, there on base. And um, one of the saving graces, though, is thankfully I had another military member that was looking out for me um, and stopped things. You know, the damage was already kind of done, but he did come in and and he did kind of save me and ask me how I was doing, made sure I was okay, um, and stayed with me for the rest of the night, um, you know, just to protect me. And and so that was just very thankful. I, I... wasn't really sure what to do or how to move on, you know, so I just, I took a shower, um, you know, and um, just moved on when my ship came into port. Two days later, I uh, checked into my ship and I was just going to leave that all behind me. Um, And so I, like I said, my ship came into port, my clothes came in, all my (laughs) things got uh, from London finally came in. So I was able to check onto my ship and, um, I was stationed on an LHA, which is, um, just one step down from a carrier. Uh, we are mainly known for Marine transport. Uh, and so it was interesting because now I'm on a floating city (laughs) and, uh, and my job, like I said, damage control at the time, didn't have a lot of females, uh, in, in that position. And so, um, which to me again was okay because I've grown up with a bunch of brothers and and my dad and I was ready to work hard. So it was it was a lot of fun. You know, you kind of had to prove yourself a little bit. Uh, and it was a little bit interesting. As I said, I joined at 20. So it was kind of interesting when I had people who were younger than me as my boss. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, what? <laughs> Why are you telling me what to do? I should be telling you what to do. Um, and so there's definitely a learning curve there. Uh, but I loved it. I mean, we were constantly at work. Um, my team, they were my brothers, they were my family, we looked out for each other. Uh, you know, and it, it was fun proving myself like one time we had to go and uh, we had to switch out um, a ballast pump. And so all the guys, this, this pump was located in a corner that we could, it was hard to get to and, and hard to position yourself to do anything. So all the guys are kind of taking turns trying to, you know, get this un- unscrewed, undone. And, you know, and I'm like, can I have a turn? And they're like, no, you can't do this. And so then the next guy would do it and, and he couldn't do it. And so I'm like, can I have a turn now? And they're like, no, you can't do it. And finally they're like, fine, fine. Come try this. And so I get down there. I'm like, pop, pop, pop. I, you know, <laughs> get the wrench and I get all the bolts off and everything. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, yeah, well, we loosened it for we you. We got it ready for you. Of course. <laughs> but, well, of course. Uh, <laughs> of yeah, course. Yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever you want to tell yourself. But at the same time, I know, like, I earned their respect, too. And so it was great. And, you know, when we'd pull into port, they would, we would all go out together. And, and you know, we really had an eye out for each other. So it definitely was um, a family bond. Uh, I did... <laughs> have a hiccup though when I was first checking in um when I went to medical I did ask to be uh tested uh you know just to make sure I didn't get anything um at the time it was really hard to talk about uh what had happened to me on base um I didn't report it as a rape I said I had um 
been uh, taken advantage of, I believe were the words that I used. I didn't want to um, seem weak or anything like that. And I just really didn't know how to admit to what had happened. Um, and But thank goodness, you know, I was cleared medically uh, and, but it did put um, a spot on my record, unfortunately, at the time. So when we pulled into our next port, um, they had put me on restriction. Uh, and at the time, I didn't really understand. It was really upsetting. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of looking back, I, I feel like they were just trying to protect me. I had been drugged. Um, so they wanted to make sure that nothing like that could happen again. Um, but it just left a lot of uneasy. How do I tell my family? How do I do this, that? So, Can but you... for the most part, again, the people that I worked with, um, the men on my team, uh, they were my brothers and, and they were all there to help me pick up the pieces and, and to help me keep moving and keep going. So that, that was really amazing. And can, can you um, explain um, just why is it that you had a black spot for reporting that you were, had been taken advantage of? You know, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I've been told um, I have friends who are still in the military in all sorts of different ranks. Um, and so, you know, even when uh, my chief had had to let me know about being put on restriction, um, he said, you know, I know the officer that you talked to, you know, I know what this means. He said, I, I don't know the full story. I don't know the full details. Um, but, you know, but they've just decided that, you know, um, since I had reported be, that I was drinking, uh, that they they were putting me on restriction and um, just watching over me. And basically it just meant like I couldn't stay out um, as long as other people on the ship or I couldn't have an overnight in the other country and things like that. Um, at first, I, like, I didn't want to go out at all. I'm not going to do anything then. I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to change anybody else's schedule. Uh, but, you know, then my chief came in and he's like, I order you to go out and have fun. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so but let, my let guys, me ask you a question you know, about did. that. So, yeah, yeah you tell them like, oh, yeah, you tell well, them you I wanted me to have fun. <laughs> then maybe you shouldn't have put me on restriction. Um, let me ask you but, a question, though, <laughs> about that. So you, you tell them that you've had an incident. Did you tell mm -hmm. them I had been drinking, but. I had to have been drugged. Yeah. And and did you report this like within that week or, you know? Like yeah, it was um, the, the, uh, the first day that I had checked into the ship. So it was actually, I think it was the day after it had happened. Okay. Um, like the full, like, cause it had ha kind of happened overnight in the morning. So, but it, so it was the next full day I had showered, um, things like that. Um, and my, my belief of being drugged is basically like I have, um, blackout, uh, spots that are just gone. And I know some people get that when they drink. Right. But, um, there, there was a time where, you know, I was drinking, I was having fun, think, you know, I knew what was going on. And then, um, I remember somebody had grabbed my drink and said, this is warm. Let me get you a new one. Mm. And after that, everything just became very fuzzy. Like even, you know, like drinking it, I felt unsure, but I just wanted to fit in. I, you know, I was with these new uh, people and, and, um, but from there, like, I just got really sick, were you just, really tired. Um, were you afraid to report it to the base? I, I, I was honestly, I was afraid not because I didn't know how they were going to uh, proceed with it. I was afraid mostly for like my standing. How would people look at me? How would people think of me? I, at that time, blamed myself for everything that had happened. Um, so, you know, like I said, reporting that I had been taken advantage of instead of straight out saying, you know, I had been drugged, I had been raped and, and things like that were really just, 
because I was embarrassed and I was ashamed and I didn't know how to talk about it. So Samara, Um, can I ask one more question before we go to our next break? At what point did you get to the point where you could say the words, I was raped? And then did you re-report that or is that just something you've worked with on your own end to be able to process what happened and and go from feeling guilty like it was your fault, no, I was just taking advantage of it, almost sweeping it under the rug a bit to the point that you could tell us today Actually, it was it, it was a rape, and obviously a lot of years have passed. When did you get to that in your journey? And then we'll take a quick break and, and continue after that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it took me many years. It wasn't actually until I got out of the military. I mean, it, it was in my record that that's what had happened, no matter how I had reported it. Um, but it wasn't until years and years of therapy, um, even actually... Uh, just this um, past year is when um, my daughter found out about it, um, my grandma, and a lot of my family that I was able to admit and open up a conversation wow. and about what, it. And what year so, did this happen? Uh, it happened in 2005. Wow. That is a lot of years. Samara, we're going to take a quick break and come back. And we want you to tell us about the journey from what happened in 2005 to where you've gotten in this last year or so. And then also some of the other wounds you have faced outside of this uh, sexual trauma that you faced. We'll be right back. All right, Samara, can you tell us, we were just talking about that, uh, the large number of years that passed from when the incident took place to when you've now been able to be a little more open, be open with your own daughter, with your your extended family. Can you tell us what the journey of resilience has looked like? We know you've been through these hard things, and yet I can hear in your voice you're still positive. You're still looking to the great people who were part of your Navy life, and not everyone was taking advantage of you, and you acted as a family and watched out for each other. I can hear you having that resilient perspective of looking for the good and being positive. Can you walk us through the journey that's taken you from everything you face, both physically and emotionally, to where you are now in in telling your story and being more open about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it it, it did uh, take a lot. You know, like I said, when I checked onto the ship and just worked with these men, um, my family, it almost allowed me to just push it all aside and, and kind of pretend like it never happened. It was always there, but it wasn't something that I had to think about every day because it was just move, 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 go, go, go. Um, and so then it wasn't actually really until I got out of the military um, so, uh, four years later, um, <laughs> unfortunately, I had uh, broken my back and injured my knee and different things like that um, in the military and, and had my daughter uh, and decided to get out of the military that, you know, I was filling out my paperwork and, um, you know, they, they're they asking everything that happened to you in the military. And it was just like a light. Uh, was brought to things again. I was actually stopping and actually thinking about things and and what was going on. Um, And, and it just, it overcame me and and almost paralyzed me um, mentally, not physically. And, uh, you know, I, I went into therapy before I got out of the military and have pretty much stayed in therapy ever since. And it's, it's really hard. One thing that I will advocate for is, I, you know, um, I have friends with uh, mental illnesses and things like that. And, you know, and a lot of people that want to bear the burden by themselves and, and don't want the, um, you know, the shame or, or just, you know, judgment of admitting that they have a problem. And I think that the only way to get better is to admit that you have a problem and find a way to work it out. Um, you know, with a therapist and it doesn't always need to be on medication. It could just be finding somebody to talk to. And, and what I advocate to everybody is, you know, you can't control what's happened to you or, you know, you can't control chemical imbalances in your brain or anything like that. But what you can control is 
who you're able to talk to and finding somebody that you're comfortable with and somebody that you can open up to. And um, I think that's really the most important. And it took a lot of trial and error (laughs) for me and, um, you know, different therapies, um, some exposure therapies and, you know, my therapist telling me to watch shows that, that, you know, involve this subject and, and things like that, which, at, um, you know, 10 years ago, if, if the um, subject was brought up, or if I saw it in a movie, or, you know, a TV show or anything, my body literally froze. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know how to react. And, and it was, it could be physically painful. And so um, getting to a point to talk about it has actually been such a relief to me. Um, even, you know, one of the big boosts for me too, was when I was still in San Diego, when I was getting my degree, uh, after I had gotten out of the military, I worked for the, um, San Diego family justice center, which is, um, a domestic violence center that only works with the victims. Uh, you know, so we have, it's a one-stop shop. We have the detectives, you could file restraining orders. We could give you plans. Um, we do retreats and things like that to help build up the men and women that are abused um, and, and get the and counseling and things like that. But um, working there and being able to talk to people that have um, similar stories and similar situations and, and being able to help them uh, was very comforting to me. I mean, it's not comforting to know that there's more people out there with, you know, similar stories and things like that, but it, it is beneficial to know that I'm not alone. Um, and Absolutely. That there are, Absolutely. Yeah. So there's people that need help and, 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 and people that need to know that it's okay to get help. And so that was kind of the start of my drive to want to be better and to want to help others. Um, and so it, it was just really, it's been, uh, you know, a, a hard struggle and still, you know, I have friends and family members that don't understand there's going to be people that you can't talk to that, you know, um, I, I've been told everything from, well, you know, you were already sexually active. So how could you have been raped? Um, and to, or you were drinking. And so you just made a bad choice and regretted it the next day. Um, and so there still is judgment out there and that I've had to just learn that that's them, that's their beliefs, you know, on, and that, well, and they weren't there. Right. And, and I could, I can, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about the story, the way that you just told it to us, is that this incident happened and then you leave the base, you don't report it, you get onto the ship, you report it on the ship. But for from me as an outside woman's perspective, I think, oh my gosh, how did you get the courage to step on a ship where you were going to be with nothing but mostly men mm-hmm. after this happened? Like that... I can kind of see how you had to like push it aside. Uh, And yet you did say that your comfort level has been around men. And I totally understand that. I have always had more men friends than I've ever had women friends. I love men. They're so easy to be with and get along and they're just fun. Um, I, I can totally see that kind of like, that may have been in some ways like, okay, these guys are going to be my brothers. But after having just had this experience, like how scary and, you know, uh, kudos to the, the man who, who found you and, you know, pulled that guy off you, I, I assume, and didn't let him to continue to hurt you and harm you. And, and who knows how worse it could have been. Um, but it is hard and, and, you know, we are in 2021, and yet um, when women have something like this happen, oftentimes we are told things like, well, what were you wearing? And, oh, you had a sip of alcohol or you you were drunk even, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, should never be a permission slip to a woman's body. So it's right. never acceptable and it doesn't remove 
the responsibility from the man for not for not being in charge of his own body. And, right. um, you know, that person could have been a help to you in just making sure you got back to your to your to the base that that evening rather than harming you. Right. And um, and so there's a lot of complicated aspects of this. And it's got to be difficult when you do share this story, because I feel like in some ways we just don't want to believe that this happens or that, you know, if, if we are sexually active, if we choose that, then 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 somehow we invite this to us. And, and it just it never does. It, it's mm-hmm. never a permission slip. And um, I I think you're incredibly brave. I mean, for me to hear you that you actually stepped on that ship with you're going to be in close quarters with a bunch of men. I, I just think, oh, I think I would have just said, I quit. What do I have to do to sign out of here right now? Well, and I'm right. so inspired. I'm so inspired by how you found ways to help other people to think of your work at the Family Justice Center, yeah. where you would have an empathy to be able to help those who maybe other people didn't believe or they, they didn't think it was a big deal or they wanted to turn the blame around. And what a resource you would be. Can you tell us, I know this is always a hard question to put into words, but what does resilience look like to you? What did it maybe look to, like to you 15, 20 years ago? What has it come to look like to you now as you're raising your daughter and, and being more open about your healing and your recovery, both physically and emotionally? What is that resilient piece to you? I think, you know, the funny thing is one of the hardest things in the world is the fact that I had a daughter. And so um, just there is a constant fear and worry about her safety and her protection. Um, But at the same time, I feel like, too, that makes me stronger. That makes me want to do more and want to speak out more um, and and want to make sure that we talk about these um, questions or these these comments that the, you know, these subjects that just aren't so comfortable. Um, you know, I, I have a very close relationship with my daughter where I am able, you know, even before she knew what had ever happened to me, um, just teaching her, you know, uh, boundaries and to respect herself and to believe in herself and, you know, and make sure she's always uh, with friends and with people she knows and never leave her drink and never let anybody get her a drink and things like that, that, you know, were conversations that I don't ever remember having with my mother or ever remember being comfortable about with my mother um, and and conversations that I open up on Facebook too now and, and talk about that it's never the woman's fault. It does, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter what we're wearing. It doesn't matter, you know, um, the second that no, was said or the second that she's not able to make a choice is too drunk or whatever and can't consent that's when it should be over and so I I feel like we need to you know kind of band together men and women because this doesn't just happen to women but you know but just that we need to have an equal voice that you know it's not about the victim which I don't really like being called a victim either, you know, um, a survivor, I know people say, um, and, and just, um, you know, just build your strength and, and, you know, and that, yes, I was there and I made choices that night too, that might not have been, um, a hundred percent appropriate, but he made that choice to do what he did. And like you said, thank God I had somebody else that walked in and and saw the situation that I was in, saw me crying, saw me fighting and helped me out. And so, you know, and I think that kind of saves a little bit of my faith in men as well, um, that, that there are people out there that are like that. Right. Absolutely. Thank goodness there are, I, I hope, and I believe this to be true, more good men than there are bad. <laughs> and, I think that's and, it. and, and, you know, not, not every predator is a, a man. We mm-hmm. should say that right. too. So, Absolutely. um, I think one of the big things that is important and what I like, you know, I'm 52. So I was raised in a very different era. Um, we never talked about consent. Consent was nothing that was ever like really taught as like part of, human sexuality or, Mm -hmm. or, um, choosing 
to to be with somebody that it should be asked and it should be clear that mm-hmm. it it should be asked can i touch you can i kiss you can i do this next thing with you like it should be clear all the way and right. it should be consensual in every step and that could be made to be very beautiful and intimate and and done in a way that um is a part of something that can be very beautiful and um we shouldn't be afraid of consent and if we're afraid to ask for consent then we probably shouldn't be with that person in the first place because there's a lack of communication and it and it's not good it's not a good situation for either partner because you're both at risk to misunderstand or misunder misconstrue the situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and I think that that's one thing that we really need to focus on in our society. I love that you brought that up. And um, and I think it's really important to teach our children that. Um, it, it would be great if that was part of curriculum. I know in Utah that'll probably never happen, but it would be my preference for it to happen because I think it protects both our girls and our boys. And I have Absolutely. both boys and girls, so it, it matters to me on both sides of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, just, I feel like us starting the conversations in and being able to talk about things, um, gets the ball rolling, you know, um, I, I, you know, again, what will or won't change. I think, you know, some of our views on, well, we only teach abstinence when we know that children are curious and are going to go out there and try things. So maybe we should teach them about protection and things like that too. But, I think, you know, we are in a time and in an era that we can um, speak up and, and, and have our voices heard. And hopefully that's that's going to lead to change. And, you know, and just recently, um, you know, like I said, my, so a lot of my family just kind of found out um, being able to open up that conversation there. And I don't think I would have been able to do that without you know, the Me Too movement or without the Black Lives Matter or without seeing people out there, you know, um, putting their names and their lives, you know, out there for everybody to see and everybody to judge and and, um, just being strong about that. And so it is really helpful. And, and, you know, I'm I'm kind of, you know, a a nobody, I'm not famous or anything like that. But if me putting my name to something and and stepping up and being willing to talk about it opens the doors for somebody else to be able to talk about it, or even for somebody else to be strong enough that it it hopefully doesn't happen um, again, then that's well worth it. Samara, Samara, I want to go back a second. You are not nobody. (laughs) Um, And famous uh, people might have more people that listen or pay attention to them. But I really appreciate you coming on our little podcast, which we have, we have a small little following, but it's growing. (laughs) And um, I really appreciate you coming on here. You know, the purpose of this podcast is uh, multifaceted and, and it's definitely to share those steps of resiliency. But it's also to remind one another that we're all connected and that we all matter and we all do have a voice and we all need to be respectful of one another. And I think that we need that today more than ever. And I think that what you're talking about, these are hard conversations, but they're conversations that we need to be having in our society. So I really appreciate you coming on, being so open and vulnerable with us and sharing this with us. Well, and I love that you've been open and vulnerable. And again, there's that positivity. I mean, so many of our guests that we've had on, I'm sitting here taking notes of what you're teaching me that from your trial. And, and your trial looks different from my trial on in terms of if we made a list of the details. And yet, like yeah. Michelle said, we're all really connected. We're all facing hard things or unexpected things or some things that feel like we just got punched in the stomach. And yet we're going to band together and rise above and and choose to find some meaning and create some purpose. And I love how much emphasis you have put on the importance for conversation. I think Michelle yeah. and I, when she first approached me about the idea of this whole podcast, um, we both agreed we didn't want it to just be a widow show, even though both of us have uh, unfortunately buried our husbands younger than we ever would have liked. But that conversation about death, conversation about 
uh, human sexuality, conversation about abuse or trauma or hurt or agony of any kind. We don't talk enough about it as a society because it's uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. awkward. It makes us squirm. We don't know what to do or say. And usually we say something really dumb. So we say nothing <laughs> at all. But how great yeah. this is that especially in the time of a pandemic where we've kind of been more physically isolated as a people, we're finding ways to be connected through conversation. Yeah. So I echo what, what Michelle said and just thanking you for coming on and sharing so much with us. I know our listeners will definitely um, benefit from just the the story that you've told and the light that you've shown on your, your own capacity to be resilient and to inspire and help the rest of us as we walk along our own journeys. Yeah. So, yeah. And- yeah, if you've, got any, if you've got anything left, go right ahead. It's always tricky because we're we're on Zoom and not able to see each other. So I apologize for <laughs> stepping on your words there. Oh no, no. I, yeah, I was just gonna say, you know, um, you know, just to me, it's just the most important thing is definitely, like I said, one advocate for yourself and speak up for yourself, and just finding the friends, the family members, and the faith. You know, um, faith has definitely been a big part of my journey and and my road to recovery and um, and even, you know, just finding a partner that's my best friend that I could speak to that um, I could tell all my secrets to and that knows me completely. And, you know, even him and I, we still have moments where, um, you know, I, I get scared or, or, you know, thoughts will come back or things will come back. And, and he's just very compassionate and just loving and we could talk about it and we can stop and there's just no hostility there or, or anything. And so that's just definitely a great place to be um, there as well. So I know it's all, but it's taken many, many, many years. So it's all a journey, you know, and, and I just hope that if anybody's out there listening that has a similar situation or knows somebody that does just, you know, it takes time and compassion and, and, just talk. (laughs) It helps a lot. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to our listeners for listening in. We hope that you have learned and been uplifted from Samara like we have. We invite those listening to go check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient. Find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like and a rating and a review. And as always, please contact us if you or someone you know has a story of resilience and overcoming to share with our listeners. We're always stronger when we lift each other up together and going through these experiences and realizing we're just not alone. You can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient. On Instagram, it's at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Thank you. Have a great day.